That's uh, Exodus chapter 17, starting at verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up on the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zephorah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershon, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came up with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning until evening. When his father-in-law saw that Moses was doing for the people, he said, "'What is this you are doing for the people?' Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. 
The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and the people, and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees, discreets, and the law, and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over the thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people. Officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. This is God's word. Father God, we pray that as we hear, we would believe. Help us to recognize your truth and to trust in your word. Amen. Okay, imagine uh, the invitation dinner's coming up and uh, God appears to us tonight and says, look, I really want them to go well. I want people to trust in Jesus, so I will do whatever you ask at those dinners. Whatever you ask, I'll do it. Whatever you think would convince people I'm real, convince them to put their trust in Jesus. What would you ask him to do? Appear in visible form and split the Thames like the Red Sea, maybe. You know, like, it'd be kind of hard for them to deny that after dinner. Or uh, perhaps we could just serve tap water, but when they drink it, it becomes Chateau de Camp. Yeah, that would, that would work for me. Or could we have a real genuine healing? You know, like a serious, proper healing. A, a dead person come back to life. I mean, how would people fail to believe if that was the case? What would you ask God to do if you wanted your guests, the people that you want to come to know Jesus, to trust him? I guess for some of us, uh, the issue isn't so much we're thinking about uh, guests, other people. We're thinking about ourselves, our own doubts, our own struggles to trust God, to to believe he's real and he's good in the face of of, uh, intellectual doubts and suffering and difficulties in life. If God is real, if God wants you to put your trust in Jesus and live for him, then why wouldn't God give you a miracle? I mean, how hard can it be if you're God after all? If you can make the universe, you can perform a little miracle for each one of us. The surprise at the heart of Exodus 18 is that it is not actually seeing that is believing, it is hearing, strangely. And the truth is that if you and I are going to be confident in our trust in Jesus Christ, if you trust him already, if you and I are going to uh, turn to put our trust in him and feel like we're not being idiots, if we're going to confidently tell other people about Jesus, then we really need to get this lesson drilled into our heads and our hearts so that we are not always wavering, always unsure, always filled with doubts. We need to learn what the Holy Spirit's going to say to us tonight. Okay, so let's uh, look together. We're, we're basically just going to focus on 18, 1 to 12. Um, 
I could do the rest of the passage as well. We'll be here for another 35 minutes. Any takers? Didn't think so. Uh, you can ask me afterwards. I'm being facetious, but I just, it's such an important message in 18, 1 to 12. I really want to focus on that. Uh, but do ask me afterwards if you've got questions on the other bits. Uh, it is easy, actually, to miss what's going on here. Um, lots of Bibles have something. I mean, look at the dear old NIV. The, um, the, the subtitles are not uh, from the Bible. They're just editors put them in. Jethro visits Moses is as much as they say. Um, some are even worse. Some uh, have it in Jethro's good advice as if the main concern of God in this section of scripture is the origin of management consultancy. You know, seriously. The Bible, the Old Testament narrative, the hero is always God. It is always primarily about God. And actually, uh, the main point even of that bit of chapter 18, the second half of Jethro's advice, is not how wise Jethro is in organizing a large national administration. It, uh, it appears in verses 16 and verse 20 with the repetition of the, of the need to teach the people God's decrees and God's laws. The section is not a strategy for organizational administration. It is a reminder that God's redeemed people need God's revealed word. That's what's going on in the second half of chapter 18. But that's not even the main point of chapter 18. The main point of chapter 18, the really critical lesson, appears in the first half. And the first sign of that is babies' names. Uh, Verses 1 to 4. What's in a name? Verses 1 to 4. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for the people of Israel and how he had brought Israel out of Egypt, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, the last time that we heard about the names of Moses' children was chapter 222, just before the Exodus. And now we're here again, just after the Exodus. Verse 2, after Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. The baby's names are important. In our culture, uh, baby's names, you just pick a name that your parents, you know, parents pick names they like. Uh, I'm called Philip. I don't know one end of a horse from another. Supposedly, Philip means lover of horses. Supposedly, Matthew means God's gift. Uh, (laughs) That was cruel. I was being genuine. Uh, uh, More worryingly... Cameron, wonky nose. Claudia, misery. Persephone, beautiful name, harbinger of disaster and death. (laughs) I kid you not. But we don't care about the meaning of names in our culture. It just doesn't matter. You pick a name that sounds nice. But in the Bible, names have real meaning. And back in 222, Moses only had one son, and his name was Gershom because... And the the reason appears in verse 3, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Moses, like the people of Israel, was away from his homeland, the promised land of Canaan. But there is a new son now because there is a new name between uh, chapter 2.22 and chapter 17, chapter 18. Something new has happened. And he has a new son whose name is Eliezer, verse 4. For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And these two names summarize all of Israel. They are names for the whole nation, not just Moses' children. Because they are, as we saw last week, pilgrims, sojourners. The wilderness where they are now is no more their home than this world is your home. Like them, we are destined for somewhere else. We're just passing through. And like us, they're more than just wanderers. 
They are rescued wanderers. They're more than just Gershom now. They're Eliezer as well. They have seen the salvation of God who's smashed Pharaoh, split the sea and brought them out to be his people. And there's a contrast too as well from, uh, if you were here last week, verse six, uh, chapter 16, where the names celebrated or mourned rather, Israel's wicked grumbling. Here, the names celebrate God's faithful salvation. Two big contrasts. Okay, um, that's the first thing to notice, that there is something important going on. We get these bracketing names before and after the exodus. So this is uh, there's something going on in this section. Secondly, the nations come to God. The nations come to God. Well, one person from one nation, but it is a start at least, you know, everything starts somewhere. The point is, Jethro's not an Israelite, all right? Jethro's not an Israelite. Uh, Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Just as the Amalekites come out in 17 verse 8, same word, Jethro comes out to him in the desert, but this is a very different visit of a pagan Verse 6, Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. And as Jethro is welcomed, we see God is a God for the nations. The Amalekites are not destroyed because they're not Israelites and God hates people who are not his people. The Amalekites are destroyed because they hate God and they try to kill and destroy his people. But God is a God who longs for all the nations to come to him. And that is what starts to happen here. Jethro's visit is a a hint, a taster of God's plan for the nations. See, way back in uh, Genesis 12, which is one of the key passages for the whole Bible, God makes a promise in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And the whole Old Testament, actually the whole of Scripture, is basically the unfolding of that promise. And what God says is this in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When God chose that one man Abraham, when God chose the one nation Israel, the aim was always that by choosing them, he would use them as his vehicle for saving the nations, for all people, because he's the God who made all people. Genesis 12.3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And you turn to the end of the Bible, Gen- uh, Revelation chapter 7, and you see this fulfilled. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After this, I looked, and as he sees heaven opened and and sees behind the scenes what's going on in God's kingdom at the end of time, and there before me was a great multitude no one could count from every tribe, every nation, every people and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. The end of time will be a great universal gathering, so joyful, so diverse, so wonderful. It'll make the Olympic Games look like a UKIP rally by comparison. That is where the nations are heading. But the pressing question is how will it happen? How is it that other nations are going to come to believe in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible? Will each nation get its own exodus? 
each nation will have its own Red Sea experience. So each nation can see God's mighty deeds and turn to put their trust in God. Is that what's going to happen? I mean, surely that would be the most sensible thing. What about today? Can each person who is weighing up whether I should trust in the God of the Bible expect God to manifest himself, to appear visibly in an undeniable, concrete, miraculous way, just as he did for Israel? Surely if he did it for them, he should do it for us. Actually, this passage shows what the rest of Scripture teaches, which is that faith comes from hearing the gospel. Uh, Look at what doesn't happen. It doesn't run like this. Uh, Look with me at verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. And then it doesn't continue. And then Moses took out his staff and performed great and miraculous signs and wonders for Jethro. And Jethro said, formerly I had heard, but now I have seen with my own eyes and I know the God of Israel is indeed greater than all the gods. If I was writing it, that is how it would run. Surely that's just sensible. You do miracles for Israel, they trust in you. You do miracles for Midianite Jethro, he trusts in you. It's fair. Job done. It's how it works. But what God does is different. Verse 9, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. God saves Israel as part of his plan to rescue and bless all nations. And then God uses Israel as the model for others to hear about, to see. Israel is not the model of what God will do for everybody. Israel, is, Israel it happens to Israel and others hear, others see. Israel is the mouthpiece to the nations, not the model of what they can expect to happen for them. In other words, God does it through his good news of his good deeds. God saves the nation by his the other nations by his good news of his good deeds towards Israel. He does it through the gospel, to put it in modern language. Yeah, but that's a little bit kind of unfair, isn't it? I mean, Israel gets to see mighty miracles, huge plagues and a sea split. Israel gets to see great and awesome deeds. And the nations are expected to believe in mere words. Blah, 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 blah. How is that fair? How is that even comparable? How can you expect the nations to believe if all you give them is mere words? Look at what actually happened though. Uh, Israel saw God smash Egypt with mighty plagues, split the sea in two. And God appear in the pillar of fire and cloud. And Israel declared their faith in the awesome God. Chapter 14, verse 31. As you'd expect on the shores of the Red Sea, when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord had displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And then they spend a chapter singing a song. And what's the next thing they do? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Moan, moan, moan. Question, doubt, grumble. 
seeing all of that and their faith lasts how long? Five minutes. Think about the water thing last week that we looked at, um, the testing at Massa and Meribah. Um, think about the chronology. So they doubt God's ability to provide for them water. Maybe it had been a few days in the desert, uh, no water. It's happened before. Oh, that's bad. No, no, no. Think about it. On the day that they doubt and question and say, God, you don't love us. You, you, you're going to let us die of thirst in the desert. What has happened on that very day, on that very morning? Why are they grumbling about water? Only water. Because on that day, they'd walked out of the camp and found miraculous food lying around on the floor that God had produced every day. On the very day, they questioned God and doubt his ability to provide water. They've got full stomachs from food he's miraculously provided. How stupid can you get? It is incredible. They've seen all of that. They've eaten all of that. And yet, their faith just disappears. By contrast, Jethro hears, Jethro believes, and Jethro praises God. Now, it's easy to think, you're making quite a lot of a small incident here. You know, Jethro says a couple of words. It's, it's not like this is, you know, you're making a lot of it, really. But actually, this is a very important incident. The structure of the book shows us that uh, what happens here is, is serious. It's important. And we're meant to take notice of it. And you can see that it's in many ways the climax of the story so far from verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. That is a big deal. What is it that Moses said to Pharaoh he needed to do? Let my people go so that... We may go into the desert and offer sacrifices to our God. Three times Moses demands, let us go that we may offer sacrifices to our God. How many times have they offered sacrifices so far to God? Never. This is the first time. This is a a hugely significant moment. Finally, in the wilderness, the people of Israel are doing what Moses said was the very purpose of them coming out of Egypt. And when does it happen? It happens as a pagan priest hears what God has done, trusts in what God has done, and sacrifices with Israel to God in praise. Faith comes through hearing. Okay, how does that fit with things in the New Testament? Uh, And it has got quite cold in here. So if people want to pull some of the things to warm up the room, do feel free. Don't suffer in silence. Uh, How does this fit with the New Testament? We've seen the model in Exodus, but what about in the New Testament? Well, we saw last week that John's gospel is in many ways uh, uh, the gospel that picks up Exodus most strongly. And as you read in John's historically reliable eyewitness account of the book of of, um, the life of Jesus Christ, it's very interesting what happens. He records seven miraculous signs in the first half of his gospel, seven miraculous signs to tell us about who Jesus is. And they are properly impressive. Turns up at a wedding, no wine, fills the equivalent of three baths full of tap water, dish water, and turns it into Chateau de Chem. That is impressive. 
Takes a guy who's been blind ever since the day he was born, never seen a thing, says a word, bang, has him healed, seeing perfectly. Goes to 5,000 men, let alone the women and children, but I guess they mention the men because they've got big appetites. And he manages to feed 5,000 men from five loaves and two fishes. And they're not blue whales, they're more like sardines. This is small fish. And there are 12 baskets left over. Walks up to a grave where there is a corpse that's been rotting for four days in the hot Middle Eastern sun and says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes back to life and walks out of the grave. That is impressive. His, his miracles are not sort of, you know, the, the heated, emotionally driven meeting and, and something sort of happened up front in the lights and uh, I'm not quite sure what was going on, but somebody's back seemed to get a bit better. This is in public, in daylight. Even his most vociferous enemies never denied that his miracles were real. They couldn't. Too many people had seen them. Too many people had eaten what Jesus had made. And what happens at the end of all of that? At the end of all of that, we read in John twelve thirty seven. even after Jesus had performed so many miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. If seeing a guy raised from the dead will not convince people to put their trust in Jesus, then how on earth will anybody do it? Well, at the very end of John's gospel, in John 20, Verses 30 to 31, John writes this. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Seeing the miracles rarely brought people to believe in Jesus. But hearing seems to work. How on earth, though, can mere words be more potent than mighty deeds? That is a weird thought, that mere words could have more power than mighty deeds. Well, because mere words are not mere words when they're God's words. You know, remember who we're talking about here. This is God who, at the beginning of time, said one word, and all of the 10 times 10 to the 82, or 1 times 10 to the 82 atoms in our 93 billion light years across universe came to be. His words are pretty impressively powerful. This is the God who, when he became a human being, was called the Word, made flesh, Jesus Christ. Words are not mere words when they are God's words. And when Jesus returned to heaven, he didn't tell his uh, disciples, carve a statue so people may worship me. He told them, I'm sending my spirit so that you will know what to say. That you can tell people what I said and what I did. And so they went out and they told people and people believed. And at the end of their lives, as the disciples started to to get killed off and come to the end of their lives, they wrote down so that future generations like you and like me could hear and know what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And people believed this strange message. And people turned And people still turn today to follow Jesus. Christianity did not spread at the edge of a sword. And it did not spread because the ruling elites became Christians. It spread like extraordinary wildfire through the Roman Empire. It spread because ordinary people heard the ordinary words 
of evangelists, people telling them about Jesus, and the extraordinary power of God brought them to believe in Jesus. That's how it happened. And it's appropriate. This is the God whose great triumph was through the humiliating, shameful, pathetic death of Jesus on a cross. How appropriate then that he should conquer the world with something as ordinary as words spoken by you and me and others like us. That is just the way God is. Three implications for us. Firstly, trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're sharp and awake, you'll be thinking, hold on a second, uh, shouldn't that read trust in the power of the word of God? Well, it does, sort of. Because the point of this passage is not that words are powerful. My words have no power whatsoever. You see it every morning on the common as I try to get my dog to come back to me. My words are weak. Words are powerful when they are God's words. Because God's words are not just words. Just as my breath carries my words, God's Holy Spirit carries his words. And so God's word, his message, his gospel message about Jesus Christ, life, death and resurrection, it works, it has power, not just because it's true, but because the Holy Spirit speaks these words. It's not just because it's true, it's because the Holy Spirit brings power to these words. And we need to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit by proclaiming the word of God. By trusting that it is the word, the testimony, the gospel announcement of what Jesus has said and done in his life, death and resurrection. That is what will bring people to trust in Jesus. God might perform a miracle at the mission dinners. He might. He's God. He can do what he likes. He has a free hand. And we're idiots if we think otherwise. But we mustn't think that an invitation dinner where there is a, um, an interview and, uh, and a short talk from the Bible is less likely to bring somebody to trust in Jesus than a rally where there are signs and wonders. We're fools if we think that. It was great at the weekend away. Um, Simon Dixon gave us a, um, a seminar where he told us about um, the, the ministry of a man called Richard Baxter in Kidderminster. Um, he's an old um, Puritan with a great statue in Kidderminster of him standing like this, which apparently is how he used to preach. Um, but he saw an entire town that was, to all intents and purposes, utterly pagan. I mean, utterly pagan. And he just preached the Bible from the pulpit on Sunday and spoke to people individually about the Bible in their workplaces and their homes, Monday to Saturday. And over the course of 20 years, he saw basically the entire town turn to Jesus Christ. Not kind of flash-in-the-pan stuff either. 80, 100 years later, it was still like that. Extraordinary just by proclaiming the word of God. That is why we will be proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection at the invitation dinners. That's why we'll be doing it, because it's powerful. That's why you do not need to feel too weak and intimidated to tell other people about Jesus. It's all right to be weak and unimpressive and not know all the arguments. The power is in the message of the gospel. So it's fine that I'm not very convincing. It's fine that uh, I don't have all the answers. The power is in the gospel. Secondly, learn to proclaim his word. See, one of the stunning implications of this is that any of us can be the agent of God's salvation. If God saves people through his spirit working by his word, then any of us who can speak or write 
are able to be the agent of salvation. All we've got to do is be able to explain the truth about Jesus and we can be the means for somebody else to go from death to life, from guilt to adoption into God's family. One of the, uh, one of the amazing things about this church, I was looking at um, earlier this week, uh, since in the, what, 15 years the church has been running, 14 years the church has been running, um, we started with 80-odd people, very odd people, I was one of them. The, uh, uh, we've had over 45 people leave their careers to become apprentices, to be trained up in how to handle the word of God. So they might be better at explaining it in sermons, Bible studies, reading one-to-one with people, all that sort of thing. Why would people do that? Why on earth would anybody give up a good career to do that sort of thing? Because one of the convictions at the heart of this church is that the word of God is powerful. And that by hearing the message, people believe and are saved. And so many people every year give up their jobs to have a go, to be better trained. Even if they don't decide they want to spend the rest of their life as a gospel minister, they have a year to get really well trained in how to handle the Bible. Why wouldn't you want to do that if this is the way that God saves people? It's been one of the thrills of the church. See so many people saying, I want to be better at proclaiming this gospel. I want to be better at helping others to understand the truth about Jesus. Uh, and it would be one and the truth is if any past years are anything to go by there'll be a number of people sitting here who in years to come will themselves be apprentices don't worry we'll tell you (laughs) why would you do it you do it because you know that through the ordinary words of ordinary people like you and me god does his extraordinary miracle of bringing people to trust in jesus you don't have to be an apprentice to do that any of us can do it all of us can do it Finally, believe in Jesus. There'll be, in a, in a group this size, there'll be a number of us tonight who are still sitting on the fence, not quite sure that we can, uh, do I, can I really commit my life wholeheartedly to Jesus? I want to say, what are you waiting for? What do you think is going to convince you? Don't wait until you've seen some miracle or, or found, uh, seen something undeniable. God doesn't promise you that. God's given you all the miracles you need in becoming a human being. God of all the universe shrank himself to become a human being. He lived your life. He died on a cross in your place and paid for your sins. And then miracle of miracles, he came back to life after that. He was seen by witnesses, hundreds of them, over 40 days before he returned to heaven. And we have a reliable account, four reliable accounts of it in the Bible. It is all the miracles we need. Don't put it off. Put your trust in Jesus. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Jules and I were doing a, a Christianity Explored course, which is basically a course to, for people to look into the claims of Jesus Christ. And on our table, um, there, was this, uh, there was this one colourful old chap who, uh, he'd, lived, he'd lived the sort of life that you read about. Uh, he'd been a, a mercenary in the Angolan Civil War. He'd lived in some fairly exotic and fruity places. And he'd had more ridiculous escapades than most of us have ever read about. And it wasn't uncommon for an evening to be slightly distracted by one of his rambling stories. Um, but they were quite interesting, so it was always hard to interrupt. And, uh, and one evening, we got onto the subject of miracles. And there was a girl on the table, and she said, I would find it so much easier. You know, it's just hard to put my trust in Jesus. You know, if God would just show me a miracle, then it would be so much easier to believe. And, and the old chap piped up and said, I've seen a miracle. 
I was thinking, oh, where are we going now? And before I could, uh, before I could interject, he said, um, it was, it was, the story was partly a tragedy. He said uh, his, um, his ex-wife had died of cancer. And he said, while they were in hospital visiting her, there was a lady in the bed next to her, to his wife, who was also dying. And she was a Christian, and her church would come around and pray for her. And he said, one night the church came around when she was really getting close to death. The church came around and prayed for her. The next morning when she woke up, she was completely better. He said, I saw her healed, get up and leave the hospital completely well. I've seen a miracle. And I was just thinking, oh, where on earth do I go from here? Um, actually, it was the best thing that happened all course. Because the girl who'd been sat on the other side of the table said, hang on a second, you've seen a miracle and you're not a Christian, are you? He said, no. Sad to say, um, he's still not a Christian. We still talk about it regularly, but he's still not a Christian. But for Charlene, it was the night when she realized, I don't need to see a miracle. And in fact, seeing a miracle doesn't make people believe. She started to realize that she had everything she needed in the word of God, in the gospels to put her trust in Jesus. And a few weeks later, she did that. And we baptized her a couple of months after that. Jesus' words produce faith. They're all we need. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, as we see in this passage. It's why Romans 10.17, Paul says later on, faith comes from hearing the message. God's words have the power to create new life in you and perhaps as amazingly through you. As you speak them to others, have confidence in his word. Trust it yourself and proclaim it to others. Let's pray. Faith comes from hearing the message. Our Father, we uh, thank you for the example of Jethro. And Father, we pray that we would not be foolish and think that uh, if only we saw some miracle that we would find it easier to trust you that our doubts would evaporate. Help us to learn the lesson of the Israelites and Jethro. Thank you that we have your word, your certain word. And Father, we pray that our confidence in it would grow as we see your spirit at work mightily as your word is proclaimed, even by ordinary people like us. Amen.